0: What was he pointing at? You don't know? Maybe the font? Is that what? Maybe it's the font, yeah. Got a pastor in the making right there. Very inquisitive. Please open your Bible to Romans chapter 9. You can find that in the Pew Bible in front of you on page uh, 945. If you're just joining us this morning, if you haven't been with us for a while, if you're a guest, we want to welcome you to Nielsville and uh, our new year. We are returning to our sermon series uh, in the book of Romans, and so when we jump into it, you'll probably think that you're in the two and a half hours into some epic what's happening here, but just uh, hold on tight, and we will make it through together. I thank you for your prayers. I'm feeling... Like I'm standing up straight this time compared to 8.30, so thank you and thanks to Steve Escholtz for giving me an adjustment in my office. I thought I was about to die when he was cranking my back, but I'm standing up straight now. Uh, let's look at Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 13, relying on, on God's Spirit to see us through and keep us orthodox, straight in our thinking. And Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears my witness in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. and not all are children of abraham because they are his offspring but quote through isaac shall your offspring be named unquote this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of god but the children of the promise are counted as offspring for this is what the promise said about this time next year i will return and and sarah shall have a son Let's pray. Lord God, as we come now to this very deep passage and in your word, we are reminded to say again the Bible is true and Jesus is God. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, we come. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak into our hearts this hour to prepare us as we come to the table in a few moments pray, Lord, that you would give us grace. Help us to know your ultimate plan and good. And, Lord, I pray that you would use these simply prepared words that I have on a page to ignite in us, Lord, a a deeper affection for your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Ryan gave a fantastic sermon last week. If you weren't here, I'm sorry you missed it. We looked at the story of the Magi, the account of the Magi coming in Matthew chapter 2, and he did a great job of of looking at the text and looking at the context of that passage, and and he pointed out to us that there is deeper meaning in the text. That's true in Matthew 2, and certainly true here in Romans, But, but... Back to what Ryan was talking about. One of his examples was the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. He said, you can look at this and see this as as a list of Jesus' ancestors. And that's true on on one level, but but far deeper is also proof that Jesus is the biological child of promise. Promised to David and promised to Abraham. And, And that's the important." of that line of ancestors. And then I think he also pointed out that if you look at all those people in, in his ancestral line, there are a lot of, kind of shady characters and less than stellar people that God uses messy people just like you and me to fulfill his purposes. Yet the people of the promise did not receive him. It's the wise men from the East who come to worship the newborn babe, It's King Herod who interprets the signs of the coming of the Magi and the star. He interprets it correctly by saying they are coming to see the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Promised One. But King Herod's reaction is one of fear and madness. And all of Jerusalem, all of the city of God, Matthew writes, was troubled But it's these non Jewish astronomers, quote, rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they are the ones who come to bring gifts fit for a king. John chapter 1, verse 9 the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. hear the words. He came on to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's the ironic, unhappy, heartbreaking context of Christmas. And the ironic, unhappy, heartbreaking context we find here at the beginning of Romans chapter 9. As we begin this series through chapters 9, 10, and 11, through, through the winter and, and into uh, the spring, I venture to, to, to guess most of us have not heard uh, a sermon or very many messages out of this portion of Scripture. Perhaps Romans ten nine: if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved, but you probably skipped most of the rest. And yet we must, we're commanded to look at all of God's word, all of the counsel of God, and to look at it in context. And the context of this passage, look at me at verses 1 to 5, the context is heartbreak. It's anguish. Paul is anguishing over the the circumstances that he finds his Kinsmen in. The crushing reality that they are rejecting the Messiah. And he's so distraught by this news, these words uh, that, that his own people have not received him but have rejected him. He's so distraught, he says right here, Lord, I would forfeit my spot. I'd give up my seat on the last flight out of town. I would give up my spot in the kingdom to allow my friends, my, my family, my kinsmen to know Jesus is Lord. Paul's saying, look, look at all the advantages and the privileges. They had. they had everything going for them. You think about when you're in high school, the person voted most likely to succeed, but then you look back, you, you see your your." hometown paper, and you see that now that person, their life is just turned into a train wreck. Or, or that person who had all-ride scholarship, this great athlete, think this person's going places, has everything going for them. Full-ride scholarship, the best education in the land, everything going for them, and it's all lost. That's what Paul's feeling times a bazillion right here in the beginning of this passage. He says, my kinsmen who have the promise of the covenant, they've been cut off from Christ, from the true vine. And I can imagine Paul wiping the tears from his eyes and and thinking, think, Paul, think. How can this make sense, Lord? Because the big question that's hanging in in his mind is if the covenant people fall, then nothing is left of the promises. And if nothing is left of the promises of the old covenant, how can the new covenant stand? It'll all just fall apart. Everything that he wrote in in Romans chapter 8, all that hope, poof, gone. He'll just fade away. That's the struggle Paul has now. If the covenant promises of the old covenant are toast, then we're all toast, then the whole rest of the chapter, it hangs on the next words written, verse six, look there with me, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And that is the theme verse for chapters 9, 10, and eleven that we're going to look From now to Easter. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, Paul writes. The word of God hasn't failed. Because God's covenant promises do not apply to every individual Israelite. Again, verse 6, the second half. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's huge. God's promises, like Jeremiah 31, 33, I will be their God and they will be my people, it still holds true. Even if 99.9% of them reject the blood-bought promise of the gospel, Paul can say, unequivocally, it still holds true. And where he's going, and where we're going, is Paul's amazing insight by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that these promises are not just for a people and a nation and a certain bloodline. It's for Jews and Gentiles. It's for people in Jerusalem and for people far off from the East, wise and foolish. The promise is for all of God's people everywhere. He's saying not every Israelite Was among God's elect. Not every Israelite was called. And he proceeds to illustrate this by looking at three generations of patriarchs. First up, Abraham. Do you remember three years ago when we looked at the story of Abraham and Sarah? Well, Abraham is exhibit A for divine election. Remember when we studied Abraham? What was Abraham doing when God came and called upon him? Do you remember? He was worshiping idols. He was worshiping pagan gods. He was a pagan. Abraham did not choose God. God chose Abraham. In the same way that Jesus says in John 15, 6, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Then Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. That's the next generation. Were they both saved? No. God told Abraham that his spiritual children would only come through Isaac and not through Ishmael. Now, why would that be? Ishmael's his son, right? Yes. Okay, he's not 100% Hebrew. His mother is Egyptian. Is that being held against him? Why wasn't he chosen? Well, God says... It's because God chose Isaac. Okay, then that's, that's two generations. Pretty good examples, Paul. But maybe Isaac was chosen because God looked into his future and saw that he would be on the most likely to succeed list. Maybe God looked into Isaac's future and said, this is, I like this guy. I like where he's headed and this other guy, not so much. That's a very common Come back and, and debate about trying to make sense of, of divine sovereignty and, and, and how we operated in, in all of this. And Paul anticipates that point and that very valid and helpful question. Look at verse 10. He moves on to the next generation. He talks about Jacob and Esau. And this was the clincher because they had the same Jewish mother. In fact, they were twins. They hadn't done anything good or bad or otherwise. No accolades, no perfect scores on the AP test, no entrance to the University of Virginia, none of that. They hadn't even been born yet. And yet God chose Jacob and not Esau. He differentiated between them, He gave preferential treatment. Which is what it means by saying, Jacob, I loved it, but Esau, I hated It's not hate-hate the way we would understand hate-hate. It's more like in stark contrast. As Jesus teaches in Luke fourteen forty-six. he says, My disciples will love their family members far less than they love me. And we have that stark contrast in love. But the same word is used. And then Paul here is quoting from the book of Malachi about God choosing Israel which is Jacob and rejecting their enemy the Edomites which is Esau. But the point is this, Jacob's election didn't depend on him being a good guy. It didn't depend on his birthright. It didn't depend on where he grew up or the color of his skin or his education or citizenship, it didn't depend on any of those things because these two brothers shared them alike. It didn't even depend on birth order because Esau was born first. He socially, by social uh, uh, ways of the time, he should have been the rightful heir. No, none of it. It depended on God. God. And we'll see Paul's big point in chapters 9, 10, 11 is that the Old Testament promises to Israel have been transferred to the elect, made up both of Jews and Gentiles. And as I look out in the room, I imagine there are quite a number of Gentiles in the room. So this is good news. But it had never been considered before until the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this. Paul's meaning here is unmistakable. Election is not based on anything that you do or will do. It's unconditional. There are no hoops to jump through. There's no score that you have to reach. It is by the mercy of God. As long as you and I can agree that God exercises any control over history, and as long as we can agree that God exercises any control over the lives of his people, and we disagree in universalism, then we have to come to terms with this biblical teaching. But the question remains, why? Why, God? Why why this way? It's so un-American. Look at verse 11, part B. In order that, God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, and you can insert self-reliance or the things that you do to measure up, not because of any of that, but because of him who calls. Why? Because God is going to keep his promises solely on the basis of his sovereign grace. The promise maker will be the promise keeper. Our faith is a condition. To be saved, we must respond by faith in Christ. We walk by faith in Christ. But the calling is by grace alone, for the glory of God alone, and it is unconditional. And so that's good news. You say, why? I'm confused. What are we talking about? It's good news because it doesn't matter where you've been born. It doesn't matter what your last name is. It doesn't matter what pedigree you come from. It doesn't matter your nationality. What matters is that God accepts you and is speaking through me to you to respond to him and to accept his invitation to the table. So what's our response? What's an application? Well, first... Our hearts ought to break for people who reject Christ. And I have to ask you, does your heart break for people who don't know Christ? Paul gives us the example right here of heartache and pain and sadness. There's no pride. There's no, I'm better than they are. They should come to church. It's just utter sadness. But does your heart break for people you know and love who don't know Jesus? And if you say, well, it's up to them. They can believe whatever they want to believe. Then, uh, friend, you don't know Jesus. Because he is life. He is the way and the truth. And you're doing your friends and your neighbors no service by not being broken for them. So we ought to take our cue from Paul and pray for those who don't know Christ. Second, we should be moved to praise God for his His attributes, his sovereignty, his mercy, his patience, his power, his promises, made and kept. So if you're struggling with this, that's a good thing. A little child asks a question, what is that thing? That's a good question. Church is a place to ask questions. So make it a New Year's resolution to get into God's Word. Say, I've never heard this before. I've never read that. Read God's Word. Search his Word and ask God to reveal himself to you more and more in his scriptures. As he really is. Not as we've been led to believe. And finally, see and savor savior, our savior. That's a mouthful. Say that three times fast. See and savor our savior. Savior. Salvation began in eternity past by God's promises and continues into eternal, eternal future secure in Christ. Jesus is the only one who can make the lights come on in your mind. He's the only one who can quicken our hearts. So as we prepare to come to the table, see him and savor him. John chapter 1, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people. They didn't receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Because of their bloodline? No. Because of their membership at a church? No. No. Because of their self-determining will, they wanted to make good choices in their life? No. Because God saw that they'd be special and better than someone else? No. Because of God's will. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, on the night of your betrayal, your arrest, you prayed For your disciples, Herod would have destroyed the mission, but he was kept from doing that. And you were secured safely to Egypt and then returned after his passing. Christmas would have been useless if it hadn't been for Good Friday and Easter. And so we thank you, Lord, for the promise of Christmas fulfilled at Easter. And I pray, Lord, that we would turn our hearts to you, that we would savor you, that we would seek to know you better and to know the mysteries that you have revealed to us in Scripture. And Lord, we want to pray for those dear ones to us. And Lord, you teach us to pray for our enemies, so we want to pray for our enemies too who don't know you. We pray, God, that they would come to faith while there is still daylight. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Please take your hymnal.